0: We have the privilege today of continuing in our Mark series, looking at another set of verses from Mark chapter 12. So go ahead, grab those Bibles and notebooks as we delve into the word of God today. Last week, we considered the parable of the tenants and the rebuke that the Lord had for the Pharisees. Just like the parable, the Pharisees had rejected every sign and every prophecy that pointed to Jesus as being the Messiah. In the end, they reject Jesus and therefore reject truth. We learned that we shouldn't test the Lord's patience. Instead right now and right here we should commit our lives to God, humble ourselves and fully surrender our lives to him. As we head into our passage today we learn that the religious leaders are clearly still not happy with Jesus and therefore they now go about setting him traps in order to destroy him. What we'll see in the response of Jesus is that the wisdom of Christ is useful in the everyday life. But more than that, the wisdom of Christ and to use the the scriptures that we have before us and properly handle them bring us confidence of an eternal life promised to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. As Martin Luther writes, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. If you're new here at Lincoln Baptist, what we do is work through the passage we have before us, gaining from it principles that we can then apply to our lives this week. And we can have confidence that as we allow God's word to shape our lives, that we can be found in Christ and therefore stake our life a thousand times on the confidence and assurance that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, we head to Mark chapter 12 and from verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his top. The they here in verse 13 refer to the Pharisees, who in the latter verses of chapter 11 and in the beginning of chapter 12 have been made to look foolish before the crowd. These Pharisees sent other Pharisees accompanied by some Herodians. Now the Herodians were a political party, loyal to King Herod, wanting to see his rule expand in the region. They looked to Rome for power and not any elements of religion. So you would think that they would be at odds with the Pharisees. However, these Herodians and the Pharisees had one thing in common. They had a common enemy and that was Jesus. Mark three six. the Pharisees went out and immediately held council with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. The Herodians hated Jesus for he was gaining popularity and there was a claim being made that he was the rightful king. The Pharisees hated Jesus, for he revealed their evil practices and their wicked hearts. So this unlikely pairing was down to the same goal, to see Jesus destroyed. Verse 14, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? These Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus with smooth flattery, trying to negate any suspicions that Jesus might have. They essentially sweet-talk him into answering their question. You are so amazing. You are so righteous in your ways. You are not overcome by anybody. Yet all they were doing was leading Jesus into a trap. John Trapp, a Bible commentator in the 1600s said, there are those who smile in your face and at the same time cut your throat. There was no interest from the Herodians and the Pharisees to be on the good side of Jesus. They wanted him destroyed. So their flattery was not about Jesus and his greatness, but simply to take him into the question they had. And what was the question? This, should we pay taxes to Caesar. Now at this time there were three taxes that were paid to Caesar. There was the ground tax, essentially 10% of all grain produced from your land. There was income tax, 1% of all your income for the year. And then there was the poll tax of one denarius each year, essentially a tax for being alive and being in the region. The trap was actually quite clever. If Jesus said no, then he could be arrested for breaking the law and not providing taxes to the state. Yet if he said yes, he would become unpopular as tax was a significant burden to the poor. So let's see how Jesus responds in verse 15 to this tricky question, really. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus knew the hypocrisy behind their questioning and he was bold enough to call them out on it. Why do you put Jesus to the test? Well, it's not to gain more knowledge. Rather, your wicked hearts are being ruled by sin and you seek to destroy Jesus by any means. And Jesus begins to challenge their question, asking for a denarius to be brought to him. Now, a denarius is a fairly common Roman coin and used to pay the poll tax and therefore was readily available in the region. The word denarius translates as containing 10, as it was deemed as 10 times the value of the bronze coin called asarius. And it's interesting to note here that Jesus didn't have any money on him. Yes, we know that Judas was the money man, but isn't it interesting that our Lord was not carrying any coins on him? I wonder if there is something significant there about how Jesus views the importance of money. He had none on him and when he needed some, he had to ask for some. Just an interesting side note there to consider today. So as Jesus receives this coin from these Herodians, he asks the question, whose inscription is this? There would have been a picture of a leader on the coin and their title around the edge, much like our coins today. And notice the one word reply from the Herodians and the Pharisees, Caesar. This would have been hard for the Herodians to accept for they were loyal to Herod and not Caesar. They wanted Herod to increase and Caesar to decrease and therefore they must have known at this point that their trap was not working. For in this one simple response, Jesus shows that the people have already accepted imperial rule for they are using the currency of Rome. Jesus goes even further though in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marvelled at him. With regards to taxation, put simply, it belongs to Caesar, so give him it back or pay him back what belongs to him. It's his face, it's his inscription, it belongs to him. If the people accept the law and order of the state, then they cannot escape the burden of the state or the costs associated with that state. And it's interesting to note here that the reason the Roman Empire rules over the people and the reason they have to pay the taxes is essentially the whole of the Old Testament narrative. The people of God were unfaithful, disobedient and regularly fell into sin. They were given a promised land and they defiled that promised land with their sin. They're in this position under Roman rule because they did not stand for God and His holiness in their land. So Jesus now goes even deeper. If the coin belongs to Caesar, your life belongs to God. The coin has the image of Caesar on it. But what image does your life bear? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You were made in the image of God. So your very life bears his marks and therefore you belong to God. So give Caesar his money, but give God your life. If Caesar gets too big for his boots and he tries to take your life and tries to take the very things that belong to God, you can rightly refuse, but expect persecution and hardship for Caesar will not back down quietly. In this one statement, Jesus not only dodges the trap set before him, but shows the Herodians and the Pharisees for what they are. They are hypocrites. Did they listen? Absolutely not, Luke 23 verse two. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They had twisted what had happened to suit what they wanted to hear. You see, this is what hypocrites do. They twist everything to suit themselves and for their own personal gain. They cannot be trusted and they must be called out on their behavior. So with this, trap one has failed but Jesus is not out of the woods yet. He still has to overcome trap two, which comes in the form of verse 18 onwards. And the Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. The Sadducees were very different from the Herodians. They were wealthy lay families in Jerusalem, often holding high ranking positions. They had fairly extreme conservative views and therefore were generally anti-Pharisees. They would hold firmly to the early books of the Pentateuch, the the first five books of the Bible, mainly looking at Genesis and Exodus, and they didn't recognise the spoken laws of the rest of the Old Testament. What we see in chapter 12 is that a political attempt to trap Jesus has failed. So now it was time for a theological trap. Essentially, these high-ranking individuals were going to use scripture to trip up Jesus. But before we go any further, note what is said here. They did not believe in the resurrection. Death was death and the claims of Jesus to come back three days later and the claims of a heavenly reward were to them utter nonsense. Let's see what their question is from verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as a wife." The Sadducees were attempting to make a theological element like resurrection look laughable by using a strict, literal view of Scripture. They were essentially ignoring the context that the scripture was placed in because the passage they were using to question from is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and from verse 5 through 10. And it had two main aims. Firstly, to ensure the family name continued because in biblical times, your name was everything. It was your very estate. Second, it also ensured that property stayed with the family name. That is, that the person, their name and their property would have been kept within the family. You see, Deuteronomy 25 builds in a protection for both of these things after death. Yet the Sadducees didn't care about the context. They didn't want to believe in the resurrection. And so they removed context altogether and they just twisted this theological element to seek to destroy Jesus. And once again, look how Jesus replies here in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus shows that they have failed to properly understand and handle Scripture. More than that, they have completely missed the power of God in this situation. Their question is, meaningless as marriage ceases to remain in the same form in heaven. Individuals in heaven will be like angels and I want you to note here, like angels. They won't be angels, but in some form of way, they will be like them. And commentators generally agree that this refers to the sexual union of marriage, one that is given to marriage on earth, but one that is very unlikely, in fact, from this verse, not going to happen in heaven we're not to project our earthly marital life onto heaven for heaven will be a new life a new holy and eternal life that Christ provides this does not mean that we won't know our spouse uh, that we had on earth or somehow we won't be able to interact with them in heaven rather it's a reminder that the heavenly realms will be very different by the power of God as it says in 1 Corinthians 2 9 but as it is written what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him." On this side of glory, it is impossible for us to truly understand what life will be like on the other side of glory. What we do know though, is the Bible talks about it having no sin, no pain, no disease, no death, and everlasting praise for King Jesus. And it would be a wonderful place, a place though, that these Sadducees have trivialized in their question. Verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead but of the living. You are quite wrong. Having dealt with these ludicrous terms that the Sadducees said, Jesus now moves to teach the deeper meaning behind his response. Remember, the Sadducees would only accept the early parts of the Old Testament. So Jesus takes them all the way back to the very elements that they would accept. Jesus quotes and hints from Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, which says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. I want you to notice the tense in both Exodus and here in Mark. I am not I was. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and he is still the God to them and he is still God to others. He is the God of the living on both the earth and the heavenly realms for Jesus is the living God and I love how Jesus just bluntly states here, you are quite wrong They've completely missed that Jesus proves the resurrection by declaring I am rather than I was. Jesus was God to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and still is God to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Therefore, there is a resurrection. There is a heavenly realm because Jesus still is I am. In just this one line Jesus shows that their ludicrous question can be demolished to show their hypocrisy just like the Pharisees. Two traps were set for Jesus, but both failed. The Herodians, Pharisees and Sadducees were all shown to be hypocrites focused on self-interest at their hearts. So what do we do with all of this? Well, here's just a few things for you to consider this week. Number one, be filled with Christ not self. Be filled with Christ, not self. Self is one of the biggest killers of faith in Christ. Self elevates your desires, your thoughts, your ways of thinking above all else and specifically above what is biblical. Self demands you to be right. It fights to be top dog and to be in the position of somehow getting good or gain. Self puts you before others and before Jesus. And as we see from today's passage, self is ugly, it's manipulative, it's wicked, and it has no place in the faithful servant of Christ Jesus. Consider the life of Christians, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see here, yourself has been crucified with Christ. There is no self left in the Christian's heart. Rather, you now live entirely for Christ. To be motivated by self or to live by self is to deny your very salvation that holds you, that saves you and brings you new life. For the old has gone and the new has come. If you're a believer in Christ, you no longer have an identity in anything else but Christ. Your identity is not your relationship status, it's not your work status, and it's not what you do in church, and it's not what you think is right or wrong. Your identity as a Christian is a child of God, citizen of heaven, alive in Christ, ambassador for the gospel. Put bluntly, self is the tool of the devil to pull you away from God. We must kill self in us, and all of its twisted and devious actions, for it is the selfless that will find blessing in Christ. Thomas A. Kempis, a, a Dutch Christian in the 1400s said this, "'Let this be thy whole endeavor, this thy prayer, this thy desire, that thou mayest be stripped of all selfishness and with entire simplicity, follow Jesus only.'" Or as Romans 12 would say, renew your mind in Christ Jesus, live for him and live a holy, acceptable and pleasing life before him. The second thing that I want to bring to your attention is to have confidence in the word of God, to have confidence in the word of God. When Jesus was tested and traps set for him, he went to the word of God and with confidence, he used it to show what was right and to what was true we too are to have that confidence in the word of God. In our doctrine seminar this week, I took you to the following verses, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The word of God does not lie. Flick to Hebrews 6:18. so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. The word of God doesn't lie because it is impossible for God to lie. If God cannot lie, then all that is within scripture must be true, John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. We can have confidence in the word of God for it does not lie, it does not err, and it is complete truth. We need not look further than the word of God for the source of truth, direction, guidance, hope in our lives. When life struggles come, we're not to run to social media for answers or to the news or even to well-meaning friends. We are to go to the word of God for it has our answers and our hope. And what does this mean this week? Simply put, get your head out of everything else and put it in the Bible. Bible intake is vital for the Christian. To have confidence in the word, we must know the word. To know the word, we must read the word and we must pursue it on a daily basis so that we would know it. I hear so many reasons why people don't read the Bible. I'm too busy, I find it too hard, I don't like to read, I don't like the Old Testament, I find it boring, it's hard to stay focused. Friends, all of this is self, which as I've just pointed out, must be killed in us. You will not get through life without the word of God. We must make it a priority for our hearts to be in it. We should read it, listen to it on our mobile apps, memorise it, do all you can to have the word of God in your hearts so that you might have confidence in it when the day of trial comes. Something I've noticed in this pandemic season is those who have remained confident in God are those who know his word. Those who have found themselves on shaky ground with God are those who do not know his word and so friends I implore you get your head out of everything else and put it in the word of God. Finally just a word of warning, hypocrites will be found out, hypocrites will be found out. Jesus took down the arguments of the hypocrites, they were intelligent, well-studied, wealthy, high-ranking and highly thought-of individuals. And in two conversations, Jesus saw their hypocrisy and he took it down, showing their true colours. So here is the warning. Jesus will find out your hypocrisy. You cannot hide it from him. And what is the hypocrisy I'm talking about? It is the looking good on the outside and to others, while inside harbouring self, harbouring wickedness, harboring evil towards others you will not get away with it the lord blesses the righteous not the unrighteous matthew 23:12 for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted See what this verse says. If you lift yourself up, if you try to look good, if you try somehow to fake your way through, if you try to say one thing but do another, you will be found out and you will be humbled in your hypocrisy. Yet also notice the blessing. For the faithful, humble servant in Christ, you will be exalted to the highest heights of glory as child of God, as citizen of heaven, as an ambassador to the gospel an heir to the throne. My prayer today really would be that we would be filled with Christ, that we would have confidence in his word and that those in Christ would be blessed with bountiful ministry for the sake of his kingdom. And those that would masquerade as hypocrites, that they would be found out, that they would be taken out and that Christ's name would be lifted high. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity for us to uh, look at your word and to apply it to our lives. Father, we pray that we would have confidence in your word and that we would hold strong to it, that we would know of our salvation in Jesus and that we would know that our eternal security is in him. Father, we pray that you call out the hypocrites, that you show them for what they are, that they will have their sin revealed. And Father, when they are humbled, we pray that they would come to you, that they would surrender their lives to you and that they would be restored, forgiven, Redeemed by the blood of Christ. So, Father, keep us this week running the race, marching forwards in full confidence in Christ Jesus. And we pray in his glorious name. Amen.